At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. Sooner or later, every leader faces a crisis. Paul Sean Hill knows a thing or two about how to manage them. The author of Leadership from the Mission Control Room to the Boardroom, Paul managed some pretty dicey situations as a NASA flight director and director of mission operations. Like the time in 2001 when a cooling system failure imperiled the shuttle Discovery, demanding fast action that ran counter to some experts' opinions. Hi, this is Kevin Delaney, executive editor of Connected Futures. In a free-ranging conversation, Paul shared with me some down-to-earth wisdom, wisdom that would be valuable for any leader. That is, whether they worry about exploding rockets and micrometeorites or cyber attacks and product failures. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Most business leaders don't deal in the kinds of life and death situations that, that you were managing at NASA's Mission Control, but there's plenty of pressures to go around for everyone. And uh, what are some of the parallels that you see from your experience at NASA that might apply with managing change today in the digital era? Well, you, you know, regardless of what you're managing, your organization, the, the team, has the opportunity to screw it up and, and wreck a project, or cost the customer money, run off customers, or even bankrupt the company. Um, and, you know, I tell people all the time, while that doesn't appear as, as sexy or as impressive as blowing up the rocket and killing astronauts, you can still cause failures that the company can't afford uh, and the company can't survive. And the larger your organization becomes, uh, the more difficult it is for executives to keep their finger on the pulse of all of those things. And the more important it becomes to know that the team at all levels uh, are making the right decisions, doing the right things in the best interest of the company, in the best interest of our customers. Um, and the tr tricky part, the common theme is now, how do you how do you decide and communicate what those right things are? How do you make sure that everybody has those right attitudes? In the mission control world, when you're flying the rockets, it's it's not very difficult at all to keep that focus because you always know in the back of your mind what's at stake. Now, the trick is, now, how do you take that out of mission control and keep that in the back of your minds also in the management ranks or when you're in another business and not flying rockets? And of course, today, with digital change, things are moving very, very fast. And things like cyber attacks can be very destructive and come out of the blue. And sometimes you don't even know to what extent you're being affected until it's too late. And then you need to, you know, you need to respond quickly. And even just disruptive startups, somebody can come out of the woodwork, seemingly, and, and attack your business model very quickly. So what you're saying is, I think, kind of interesting in terms of the business world today more than ever. Well, you know, and, and one of the things, so, you know, take cyber attacks, you know, it's, um, you know, if you were to compare that, say, to flying in space, you know, the, the thing that you want the team to always have in front of them, you know, the team that's managing your, your networks, for example, is what is the worst thing that can happen to us? And what is our no kidding fail safe? How do we separate ourselves from the threat? So if the threat is the open web, for example, 
What, what actions do we have to take to know that we can secure our data and our system from the web? Even if it's an overreaction, what ultimately is the most that we can do? And then what are all the in incremental steps in between? And when do we decide which of those triggers to pull? And is there a downside for overreacting? And if there's not a downside to overreacting, maybe we overreact every time and emphasize keeping the system safe, keeping our data secure. But you go, you have to go through all of those types of thought processes in the calm light of day when you're not under under attack. And then you have to practice the, the decision making, sort of you know, like in simulations, like we do in spaceflight, to make sure that when it happens, you really are going to decide that way, and there's not something that you missed. And then you have to hold people's feet to the fire to do it. Among the challenges that you faced in your former job, one 2001 incident stands out. Could you talk a bit about that experience and some of the lessons that might apply to some more down-to-earth challenges? Yeah, I'm sure you're referring to a case where uh, we, we had ice up here in one of our cooling systems yes. on shuttle. Um, and when it first happened to us, at the time, we were, we had a, we were flying a shuttle uh, with astronauts on board, of course, and it was docked to the International Space Station. And um, the, the orientation that the space station and the shuttle were flying in made it cold for the, the, the radiators on the shuttle where we, we, where we got most of our cooling. And we started seeing one of the two systems start, start to trip off, sort of like a circuit breaker opening. But in this case, the flow was stopping and the, and the entire system would stop. And as we kept trying to recycle it, we couldn't get it to run. And uh, my expert for the cooling system pointed out to me that, that the, the indications to him looked like we had a blockage in the line. And based on the temperatures, he was concerned that we had ice. And some other engineer, engineers who were supporting us told, told him that it wasn't possible for us to have the ice in the system. It had to be something else. He was concerned enough, though, that if we had had ice in one of the two systems, that, that ice, if it dislodged, would flow downstream to a particular part of the system that was very sensitive and could cause it to crack. And if it cracked, we would lose all cooling on the entire shuttle, which meant we would have about 30 minutes and we'd have to turn shuttle off. And it would be, actually be no good for the astronauts to come home in. So it definitely had our full attention. And we treated the system as if it had ice in it. And in fact, we, uh, we had to wake the astronauts up on the shuttle and on the space station. We had to turn on all kinds of equipment on shuttle. And we, we pivoted the space station and the space shuttle around in the sky to put heat on the right parts of the shuttle. And in the course of about an hour, we had the system running again because we had put so much heat into it. Clearly, we had melted ice that was in the system. And after that hour, we had the system right back in its normal configuration. After landing about, I don't know, probably about a week later, we got that shuttle on the ground. And darned if they didn't find water inside that cooling loop. So confirmed that we, ab we absolutely did have ice in the system. And they did a test. And in the test on the ground, they showed that if we'd had ice in the system, the, the system would have behaved exactly the way we saw it, which our experts had never seen in flight before. So if we had kept doing, kept flying the way we had been flying and didn't take the actions that we had, we would have, we likely would have lost that shuttle and would have had to send a rescue shuttle up to get those astronauts down from the International Space Station. It certainly happens enough where a leader is confronted with conflicting opinions, conflicting information, and that decision-making process comes down to the one person, in, in this case, you. In this case, you know, my real focus wasn't so much, I now am the guy that gets to decide, although 
in, in, in a sense, I mean, that is the authority that I had at the time. The flight director is, is, is in fact, empowered to take any action necessary to protect the crew and then to protect the spacecraft. But, you know, my focus isn't on, great, I get to be the decider. It's, holy cow, what's the worst thing that can happen right now? And how do we keep that from happening? And is there a way we can keep that from happening that doesn't cause us to undock from shuttle now, I mean, from space station now and attempt to deorbit? That could be very dangerous, especially if we really do have ice in this system. What if we lose the shuttle when it's no longer docked to space station? Because the astronauts are arguably safer if they can just go inside space station and get out of an abandoned shuttle. And so all of those things are, are, would now go through your head in managing an emergency like that. What's the, what's the worst thing can happen? What would we do to prevent that from happening? And are there other next bad things that can happen after that? And are we sure we're in a good position to control each one of those? You know, in this case, in 2001, when, when, when I was leading the, the flight control team for shuttle, as we went through it, you would have been shocked at the lack of adrenaline, the lack of apparent excitement in the room. Because, I mean, that is exactly what we're trained for, is making those types of decisions in the worst of conditions. As soon as it was over, though, actually two things happened. One, um, one of our big bosses walked in the room just beaming because he had been downstairs in a conference room listening over speakers as it, as it all happened. And he came in to tell me how proud he was of the team and how great these, these guys were, which, which he was right about. But then when I, I, not long after that, I got off shift and I walked outside and looked up at the sky. My hands were shaking a little bit. And I thought, oh, my God, did that just happen? Because at some point you do look back and realize it's a damn good thing. We made the right decisions and took the right actions here because it was all at stake. And we weren't even completely sure how much we had at stake during part of it. NASA's famous for these steely nerved people, you know, Neil Armstrong, who calmly handled really an unusual share of near-death experiences in, in his career, even by astronaut and test pilot standards. So it's almost like this supernatural ability they have to stay calm during a crisis. And maybe there is something in their DNA. But as you say, a lot of it is relentless preparation, isn't it? Oh, you bet. And, and, and we learn, so you, you, you learn pretty quickly. Your entire focus has to be, what is the data telling me? Do I need additional information? Do I need to get more data? Do I need to reach out to another expert sitting next to me and get another opinion from that expert? But what are the facts? What do those facts mean to us? And what's the right action to take to first protect the astronauts and then protect the spacecraft? But what are the right things to do for the thing I'm responsible for? Then you have to have the courage to go do it. And we are trained very well, and we practice enough that that we become really good at that. And, it, and the practice isn't so much about making sure when this light comes on, we always take the right action. It's trusting trusting yourself, trusting the experts around you to follow that process. Evaluate the data, make the decision based on what's really happening, to do the right thing to, pr to protect what we are responsible for, and then having the courage to speak up and do it. And sometimes going out of the box as well, right? Because in your case, something was happening that wasn't really supposed to happen. Right. You know, and in those cases, it becomes, it is, it is just as important not just to be willing to take the action, but to be willing and able to say out loud, here's what I'm seeing. Here's why I think it's bad. And here's what I think we need to do. And by the way, some of our experts think that this isn't the right thing to do. I think it is. And here's why. And that here's why part of the discussion helps because then the other experts on the team can weigh in and say, oh, I think there's a hole in your logic. Here's a mistake you're making. Or they can help reinforce your thinking. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. Here's some additional data 
that I have that they don't have or that you don't have that even reinforces what you're thinking, that makes it clear this is the right next thing to do. And of course, everything today is so data-driven. You have more information in which to make a decision. And that can be a challenge in and of itself. You have more data to go on and you can be overwhelmed by that. Oh, yeah. And in those cases, you, you, you either need, or maybe you need some combination of, enough of the right people evaluating the data rather than one person now becoming data overloaded. But you also need to have then the right tools, the right systems. So, you know, like anybody that's dealt with big data in various industries knows that better have the right software processing that data so you can make sense of it. You know, on Space Station, gosh, I, I don't remember what the number is today. I want to say there's something crazy like 800,000 or a million different sensors all taking different measurements on the space station uh, at any given moment. And there's some several hundred thousand of those that are coming down to the ground continuously. You better have done your homework in the software that's processing all that data and, and having the people sit in front of the systems evaluating that data to make sure you understand what it means to you. And it's not going to either mislead you into thinking we don't have a problem or fool you into thinking that you do have a problem and now you take a rash action you wish you hadn't taken. Yeah. And of course, some emerging technologies are coming in here as well, like artificial intelligence, which can not just crunch data, but also, uh, you know, quote unquote, think out what people need from it. Oh, yeah. And we, matter of fact, about, I'd say probably 10 years ago, we started ex experimenting uh, with some software to manage the space station with some help from, from another NASA center in California, the Ames Research Center. Um, and they came up with some software that looked at large volumes of data, but looked at it in, in very precise terms. And it looked for, for very tiny or subtle changes in the data. And at the time, one of the things that was driving us crazy was we were having a problem uh, with a system that we used to control the attitude of the, the International Space Station, you know, where we were pointing Space Station in the sky. And the system was these very large wheels that are spinning, and, and you use that spinning momentum to control the Space Station. Well, we were starting to have problems, and we had, we had lost one of them, and we were starting to see indications that another one was failing. We only had four, and if we actually if we lost if we lost a second one, it would have been a big big problem for us for for controlling the space station. And using this software, we were able to go back and analyze months and months of data that was measuring the speed, measuring the vibration of these systems. And the software was able to see very subtle changes at certain parts of the orbit that we could attribute to other things that were happening on the spacecraft that our experts that were looking at it could not see the data. Without the help of the software, we would not have caught it. And with this kind of early AI, this early pattern recognition software, it allowed us to see exactly what was causing the problems with these systems and allowed us to stop breaking them in the future. Sometimes the, the, the strategies that once made an organization successful can also hold you back, especially with the kind of disruptive technologies we're talking about. We're talking about AI, but so many digital technologies that have come along in the last 10, 20 years have disrupted business models and assumptions about the way things should be done. And I imagine that can even happen at a, a cutting edge organization like NASA. Well, you know, the challenge is you have to function. I mean, you have to focus on the, the, the function. Um, you know, you think about when I started at NASA, the entire generation of leadership at the time had not had PCs all the way through college. Most of them had probably had the very first PC they'd ever used sitting on their desk when I showed up at NASA in 1990. 
Um, and compare that to the kids that are coming out of college today and going to work for NASA and the amount of experience they have using modern systems, including smartphones, things that didn't exist when I came out of college. And where we get stuck is we frequently will point back down, say from the executive level, and we'll constrain the people below us. Hey, look, I didn't need those fancy gadgets to do that job when I was where you are, so you don't need them either. You should be able to do it with the same things that we used um, when, we, when we went to the moon, which, by the way, is not an un, was not an unusual thing to hear from management in the 90s when I got to NASA. We didn't need that to go to the moon. Damn it, why do you guys need that now? And, and it's astonishing when you think about what was accomplished with, with the primitive technology of the time. But nevertheless, you still have to change. Right. Well, you know, one thing is, um, you know, in 1990, flying space shuttle, you, you had as many as 150 people on console throughout the mission control building, not all in the main room, but each of those 15 to 17 people in the main room could have as many as six to 10 other engineers sitting at other consoles in different rooms, looking at details of the data. And, you know, if you fast forward then to the 2000 time frame, 2010 time frame, where we were able to operate the entire space station with only seven people on console controlling the space station. How, would, how did we do that? By leveraging the hell out of modern PCs. In fact, in most cases, PCs that we could buy off the shelf, you know, consumer level PCs, you know, HPs, Dells, that kind of thing, rather than rolling our own. And instead of needing 150 people to do the job, we could we could do a much more complicated job with only seven people, but it requires you to figure out how do I now leverage these new tools that weren't available to me three years ago or five years ago, but now they are. Can I use these to make, make my job, uh, to make my people better at the job, to make the job easier for my people uh, so, so that we make better decisions? Or am I just buying the latest fad and the latest gadget and I'm spending money just to spend money? And, there, and there's, the, there's the hard question to answer. Yeah, it's a fine line because technology is great and it, it makes our lives simpler in so many ways, but it's a double-edged sword. It can complicate your life as well. You can have clunky tools that aren't necessarily intuitive and too many right, of them stacked you know, on top of one another. When we went from mainframe computers to the early distributed architecture that was available in the 90s, just as the internet was really taking off, to what's available to now, I mean, today, which looks like normal internet capability and consumer-level PCs, much closer to consumer-level networking systems, we can, we can have significantly higher capability. Actually, we, we do have significantly higher capability in the control center today at a fraction of the cost. I mean, as recently as 2013 through 2015, we completely overhauled the systems in the mission control center by going as close to the consumer level in our computing systems as we could. And in, in the course of two years in replacing all those systems, we cut our total costs and the total workforce required to maintain the control center in half. And the significance of that is half of our total budget was just maintaining the stuff that it took to make mission control run. And just by modernizing to the latest and greatest computers, we, we cut our we cut that in half. So I mean, we, it was a twenty five percent reduction to our total costs for providing mission control to to manned space programs, and we did it without giving up any capability. In fact, our capability capability soared when we did it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are still some massive challenges to IT around security, though. 
Oh yeah, you know, and, and some of that is there's a lot more capability than the the mission control center is willing to take advantage of. So you know, if you think about the flexibility that the internet would provide for you know people being able to to control the systems on the spacecraft from anywhere around the world, and boy, that'd be really convenient. Of course. You know, for me, when I was director of MOD or director of mission operations, what I heard in that was, holy cow, we're at risk. Because if somebody ever finds the keys to that gateway, then they can have direct access to our spacecraft. And we don't want that to happen. So we took great pains to, to sever and prevent those, that, those types of connections of happening to our systems. In Silicon Valley, it's a badge of honor to have failed fast and often, as they like to say, and, and recovered. People actually brag about it. But that's pretty tough when lives hang in the balance, hence the phrase failure is not an option at NASA. But it's still important to have a culture in which people can try out new ideas and think outside the box. How do you get that balance in an environment like mission control? Right. Well, it's a good point. You know, and, and I've had people say that to me many times as I was speaking about the culture, say, of, of the mission control team. And I said, well, here's a fascinating thing about that. You know, which crew of our astronauts would it be okay for us to fail and let die? So what you really have to ask yourself is, which failures can I tolerate? You know, which failures actually represent uh, something that threatens the entire organization? Is it, po- is it, is it okay for me to fail at those? Um, and there are going to be some of those that you can't fail at, but then there will be others that we can try this and it is just a learning experience. If, you know, we try some experiment in space and it doesn't work, well, we learn something there. It, but if we send somebody out on a spacewalk, we weren't prepared to send them on and it's, if something happens to their suit and they die. That was not a good risk to take. We didn't think that one through. Um, and so like in the control, in, in the mission control center, for example, we, we established an entire lab whose purpose was to reach out and pull state-of-the-art or leading-edge technology off the shelves that was being rolled out in, in other industries by, you know, this IT industry that didn't exist back in the 60s. And instead, we had an entire lab that we let those guys experiment. You know, what if we had a, a voice-over internet protocol system we could use instead of our dedicated comm system? What if we use these systems, these touch screens that are commercially available. What if we could build a control center that used these types of technologies? And then and, 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 you know, many of those things failed. You know, they weren't ready for prime time. They, they couldn't process enough data or they couldn't do it fast enough or there was too big a, a time lag in the voice. But over time, they would start to see, okay, this one didn't work, but this one over here, this one worked. And we can roll this out now and this system is better than the one that we paid 10 times more for, for our own custom systems in the control center. Let's use that one. And that's absolutely a way that you can fail forward and find things that help the organization be better and, and be, be more cost effective. Speaking of Silicon Valley culture, NASA itself is being challenged by an upstart disruptor, SpaceX and some others. Has that affected the the leadership and the managerial style as or the organizational culture as you as you've seen it i would say it didn't affect the leadership style down and in the mission control organization you know i would say nasa as a whole nasa as a whole has has um um you know they've definitely had their challenges for the better part of the last 10 years you know when the shuttle it was decided in 2010 that the shuttle program would be retired and we, we canceled the, the Lunar Mars program. Um, and so the message that w- was, was then received by NASA is, 
nation doesn't appear to be to, to, to any longer be as committed to human spaceflight as we once were, and now we're only going to fly the space station. Um, and that definitely changed the leadership dynamic and the discussions at the highest levels inside NASA. Now, down and in the Mission Control Organization, where you still have to manage daily risks of people living in space, um, the, the, the focus still remains the same. Mission Control was really one of the first workplaces where people were fed real-time data on a, on a constant basis. Today, that's happening in all kinds of areas. And any thoughts on how that's changing leadership and the future of work? Because there was a time when, in a business, the C-suite and the data scientists had access to these data insights. Now it's spread over entire organizations. So the whole role of decision-making goes lower and lower down the chain as a result. Well... I, I, that's true, and I think that can be a positive thing as long as the people that you're pushing the decision making down to are prepared to make the decisions. And I think there was a there was a uh, a long period of time where managers, I'll even I'll just speak for the NASA organization, managers appeared I mean appeared to be almost paralyzed by what do we do with this if we're not if we're not listening to all these people that now have all these opinions, then it sounds like we're not being inclusive versus having the management processes to make sure that, okay, all of those people that have those opinions, let's make sure they are heard. Let's make sure they are heard by the different levels of management who also have the right perspective and the right experience to make some of the decisions that some of those folks don't have. But you have to have the communication processes and the management processes such that each level is able to have those discussions, pass the things up that are, are of concerns in the workplace. But make the decisions at the level where you actually have enough perspective to make the good decisions. As more decisions do get passed down to the perhaps the middle levels, it gets back to what you talked about, the aspect of leadership that you have that relentless training where you really trust the decisions that you do bestow on, on those middle level people, perhaps you have a lot of faith in them. Right. Well, and, you know, and as, as Reagan said, trust but verified. So, you know, I, I was very proud of that as an executive. One of the things that I learned to do very consciously and very deliberately was push as much of my authority down to the level that reported to me as I could so that I was acting as much as possible as just kind of the coach in the game, not the ultimate decider. Um, and, and, you know, in the mission control world, you, when you're flying the spaceship, that, that, that really is how business is done. You're surrounded by these experts, and the flight director's job is to make sure the experts are focusing on the right things and then bringing the right recommendations to the flight director so the flight director doesn't have to actually think of, of all the good answers because it's too big of a job. And as a, as a leader, you can do the same thing and encourage your people to make those decisions and encourage you know, each level of management to push as much of their authority down as possible. But a necessary component of that has to be at each level asking why. Hey, why is it you think this is the right answer? Why do you want me to now recommend this to the level of management above me? Help me understand it. Help me understand that we have done due diligence and, and then pass that information up. And you can do that really quickly. Technology change isn't slowing anytime soon. Any thoughts on the coming years and, and how that evolution will, will progress? You know, I, I think the, the focus really has to be on, on however many levels of management an organization has, making sure that from level to level, you can effectively pass up and down 
the key information. So here are the things we're concerned about that we really need to get passed up to the upper management. And and managers have to figure out how to do that concisely and not just to, to look down the, down the line and say, no, I don't think that's important. I'm not going to tell them. Well, engage with the folks who, are, who have a concern that you don't share. Try to understand what it is you're not communicating on and why they're concerned about something you're not. And then send that up. Hell, tell the level above you. My guys are really worried about this, and I still haven't figured out why they think it's such a big deal, but they do. We probably need to talk about it. And, and I think even with, with, with modern technology, even with the ability for everybody to communicate with everybody, it's still going to be necessary at each level to have those conversations. Why do we think this is okay? Why do we think this is a problem? Now let's pass that discussion up. This is Kevin Delaney for Connected Futures. My special thanks to former NASA Mission Controller Paul Sean Hill. And here's hoping that any crisis that your team faces is met with clear thinking and down-to-earth decision-making. For more insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfutures.com.